I'm Josh Chang, your host, and you're listening to the Precision Guided Podcast, Georgetown Security Studies Review's official podcast covering all things national security, military, foreign policy, and history. Thanks again for joining us for another round of discussions and podcast listening. Today's a special day and a special episode. Today we have the Honorable Matthew P. Donovan. He's the former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness. Mr. Donovan served as the Principal Staff Assistant and Advisor to the Secretary of Defense for Force Readiness, Force Management, Health Affairs, National Guard, and Reserve Component Affairs, Education and Training, and Military and Civilian Personnel Requirements and Management, including Equal Opportunity, Morale, Welfare, Recreation, and Quality of Life Matters. A presidential appointee confirmed by the U.S. Senate in March of 2020, Mr. Donovan provided policy, guidance, and oversight for the readiness, management, and healthcare of the department's 4.5 million total force service members, retirees, their families, and the civilian workforce. And in his pre- previous capacity, Mr. Donovan served as the Undersecretary of the Air Force from August 2017 until March 2020, as well as the Acting Secretary of the Air Force from June 2019 until October 2019. Mr. Donovan, it's great to have you on the pod with, with us. Thanks again for joining us. Well, thanks, Josh. I'm really happy to be here. Yep. Um, for our audience, today is a special episode in that we'll be discussing space security and U.S. national security readiness under COVID-19. And Mr. Donovan has a lot of great insights as to, you know, as to how those topics are playing out. So we'll, we're glad to have him on board and ready to listen to this discussion. Yep. And um, Mr. Donovan, sort of our first question is right off the bat, um, I guess space security related. Um, so space security has taken an increasingly prominent role in the U.S. national security discourse ever since the establishment of U.S. Space Force, as well as the reestablishment of U.S. Space Command uh, back in 2019. Um, however, space security um, and its relationship to warfighting, I guess, as you know, isn't exactly new, right? Um, in, Pers- in the Persian Gulf War and Desert Storm in 1991, uh, we witnessed successful U.S. military operations against the Iraqi military, whether th- you know aided by precision-guided weaponry um, and navigational systems. But all those tools were backed by the space architecture we had um, back then. And even the Cold War seemed to feature a lot of vigorous debate and discussion about the relationship between terrestrial military activity and space-based assets. Um, but in your opinion, Mr. Donovan, uh, what do you think has contributed to the on-and-off emphasis on space throughout the history of the US, U.S. national security effort? And what do you think has contributed to the recent uh, sort of resurgence of interest in space? And what do we expect going forward? Well, that's a great, great question. And you have a, a lot of questions buried in your comments there, but uh, let me see if I can pick it apart a little bit. Um, if you talk to any of the Space Force guardians that are serving today, they'll tell you that it hasn't been on again, off again, that they've been, uh, you know, professionally focused on this uh, ever since we put the first satellite uh, up into orbit. Um, the first U.S. Space Command um, was established in 1982 out in Colorado Springs, and uh, it was a triple-headed command with uh, the commander of NORAD and the commander of Air Force Space Command all in one headquarters, if you will. Um, that lasted until 2006. So I think the perception of on again, off again is more uh, political in nature 
Um, following 9-11, when NORTHCOM was uh, established, uh, the Congress didn't like the idea of just continuing to add combatant commands onto the scrolls. And uh, they insisted that a, a combatant command be taken down if you're going to stand up a new one, Northern Command, um, to take care of homeland defense and that sort of thing, uh, which is now dual added with NORAD. So I think I I think it's probably more uh, political in nature um, because of the perception, um, but lately uh, it's more uh, due to uh, rising threat from China and Russia. We can get into that more. Oh, for sure. Um, and Mr. Durham, I guess, yeah, in, I guess speaking on China and Russia, since these two sort of great power adversaries have sort of loomed large when it comes to our national security in space, we know they're sort of developing their own counter space capabilities, and they're very much interested in the space architecture to further their own national security interests. And I guess it points to this fact that, you know, space traditionally has been an arena of competition and cooperation, right? Um, with some people believing that hey, like the furtherance of norms and cooperative behavior is possible in space. But at the same time, there's this competitive aspect uh, given our adversaries' interests in this domain um, and also our reliance on this area for our own interests as well. Um, in your opinion, Mr. Donovan, um, is there a way to sort of have this middle ground where you can sort of have the mantra of cooperative behavior and sort of norm creation, but at the same time being able to maintain national security interests? Uh, in your opinion, how does that look? Um... Well, I think it's uh, it's something that uh, the uh, leaders of all the nations of the world have been struggling with, especially the ones that um, would be spacefaring, uh, as you understand. Um, it, there's some interesting parallels with maritime law. Mm -hmm. um, you know, for decades, really for centuries, we used uh, tacit rules for maritime law. It wasn't until 1973 uh, when the United Nations started the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea uh, that took a subsequent nine years uh, before it was established as, as a uh, international treaty or convention, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are a lot of the same rules that could apply in space as well not only uh, right of way, but rights of passage, uh, you know, those sorts of things, uh, limits of, uh, of uh, countries, territorial rights, if you will, in the vertical. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very interesting. Um, and although the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea uh, has been signed by the United States, it has not been ratified. Uh, by the Congress. Uh, as you know, Congress ratifies treaties. Uh, and there's been some pushback against it because of concerns um, uh, that it may open us uh, to meritless uh, lawsuits, uh, those sorts of things with the sea. So you can see that there's parallels with that, um, that if, uh, if the United States doesn't take a leading role uh, in uh, treaties or conventions such as the law of the sea, uh, then it could hold us back when it comes to establishing those international norms in space as well. Donald Rumsfeld, even uh, back before he was Secretary of Defense, had, had mentioned that uh, the United States, uh, if it were to ratify uh, the 
law of the sea convention uh, that it could have some negative impacts on us as we uh, extend that out into a uh, lot of the space, if, if you will. Uh, so there's some interesting uh, issues there. I think, I think there are really uh, two things that have contributed to the resurgence of, uh, of awareness, if you will, of the space domain. Uh, the first is the increase in innovation by the commercial side of the industry. You take SpaceX, for example, um, when they uh, developed and then placed their reusable boosters, mm -hmm. it, it rapidly decreased the cost of space launch. Mm -hmm. Where um, for national security launches, we were spending upwards of $250 million per launch. Extremely expensive because of the high uh, mission assurance uh, uh, requirements and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they've been able to, you know, use reusable boosters that really reduce the cost of, of uh, per launch uh, mm -hmm. is incredible. Plus, it's just fun to watch. I mean, yeah, of course, we're yeah. on the SpaceX website and and watch their launches and and watch the uh, boosters come back down to Earth and that sort of thing. It it, it generates a lot of interest uh, in the nation. Um, another another thing would be the uh, emergence of uh, putting up thousands of satellites to provide space-based internet service. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Amazon has a program, uh, SpaceX has a program, um, you know, that's, that's bringing a lot of interest in, in positive and in some ways negative, uh, you know, especially uh, nighttime observers, astronomers, and that sort of thing are, are concerned about having so many thousands of you know, man-made objects up there that would keep them from being able to view into, into deep space and that sort of thing. And then the other one is what we've already mentioned is the emergence of the threat. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the sophisticated threats that Russia and China have, have posed. Um, you mentioned Desert Storm. You know, Desert Storm was uh, billed as sort of the first uh, conflict that used widespread uh, precision munitions, uh, even though, in fact, it was only about 10% of the munitions expended uh, were, were precision type munitions, but it sort of kicked it off from the time when they were first developed in, in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, since that time, both the Russians and the Chinese have gone to school and studied about the American way of war which is enabled by space-based assets. And that caused them to uh, develop uh, counters to those types of, uh, of military assets that we use and, and not just military, but commercial assets as well too. So uh, one of the things that, that is really concerning is, is how do we protect our space-based assets uh, against a belligerent uh, nation um, in both peacetime and in, and in conflict, uh, times of conflict as well too. So I think that's really what's been driving uh, the uh, resurgence of interest, if you will, in space. And then also, you know, um, in my administration, uh, you know, the previous administration, the, the reinvigorating of the National Space Council, uh, the interest in putting, um, you know, humans back on the moon and, and eventually on to Mars. I mean, that generates a lot of interest uh, and not in space that I've seen since, 
since the 60s. I was, uh, I was 11 years old watching Neil Armstrong take the first step on the, on the surface of the moon. That generated a lot of national interest. So I think it's a combination of those factors. Gosh, no, thank you for that assessment, Mr. Donovan. Um, I guess your, your comments sort of bring up another question in mind uh, about how to, how to manage the threats in space. I know in any sort of general facet of foreign policy, you know, there's an emphasis on, you know, cooperation with allies, multilateralism. Um, in terms of space-based threats um, and competition with our adversaries in that arena, what are the sort of avenues of cooperation you see alongside our allies? Do you foresee, um, I guess, closer cooperate, like technical cooperation, say, with other sort of allied space agencies? Uh, what, is that, yeah, what does allied cooperation look like in space? Well, I, I think it's well underway. Uh, General Jay Raymond, who's the chief of space operations, has made that one of his focus areas is, uh, is uh, you know, increased cooperation between allies uh, as well on the military side of things. Um, on the civilian side, you know, we've had that for years and years. I mean, you know, we share, you know, the International Space Station with Russians and uh, uh, the Chinese are, are getting ready to launch their own, but we've had we've had many many years and decades of cooperation on the civilian side, uh, which is where what I think everyone wished it had stayed uh, was uh, space as a benign domain. Um, but uh, unfortunately, you know, the threats have dictated otherwise that it's not going to uh, remain benign, and um, you know, so I, I think. I think what we see is really an extension of other cooperative efforts that we have with allies uh, in the other domains, uh, whether it be air, land, sea, or even cyberspace. And uh, which brings up a good point because cyberspace and space are actually really closely related. And, uh, and we're seeing um, uh, a lot of interest by even some, um, even some nations that uh, are not traditional allies, if you will, but any of them who are interested in uh, becoming uh, spacefaring nations uh, want to uh, cooperate with the United States. So I think it's headed in a good direction. Gotcha. No, thank you for those comments on that end. Um, Mr. John, I, I guess another question from mine is uh, we talk about sort of emerging space powers, right? And I think sort of a sort of a buzz country that's been kind of sort of generating hype in the news throughout the space security is India. I know India conducted an ASAT test in 2019. Um, it's, heavily in, it's heavily invested in space. Um, what do you think, of, I guess based on your views, what's the trajectory for how they're going about space security? Do you see, um, clearly they are a US partner, um, but what sort of avenues and dynamics of cooperation or possibly even conflict do you see with regards to the Indian space uh, venture? Well, um, you know, I think I think it goes along with other areas of cooperation. Um, it's a whole of nation effort, of course, uh, mm -hmm. you know, on the civilian side, which is traditionally led by the State Department. But the uh, on the military side, we've made a lot of inroads and in, in discussions with India, and uh, you know, arms purchases, those types of things. Um, uh, you know, because India is a, a major player in the Pacific and something that we could see as a hedge against the Chinese hegemony and uh, in the region as well too. So we're very interested in, in continuing cooperative efforts uh, with India. As far as space, they have one of the 
you know, more advanced space programs. Um, you mentioned the anti-satellite test, which uh, um, we strongly disagreed with because, you know, it left debris in, in orbit, uh, like the Chinese test in 2007. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we conducted a test in 2008, uh, it was actually on a already decaying uh, leftover uh, satellite uh, that wasn't in service anymore. And so uh, all the pieces burned up in the atmosphere pretty quickly. But mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but they're, they're trying to uh, sort of uh, extend their wings, if you will, and show people that they have the capability. And, and in that way, it's useful. Uh, it's just that we don't believe in, um, in causing more debris than there already is in, in orbit. Right, no, th thanks for your comments, Mr. Donovan. Um, and let's sort of pivot over to the readiness side. And I know you've done a lot of policy work in this area. Um, so I guess the big looming question um, from, from your experience, obviously COVID-19 has tested our country's military um, in so many different ways. It's, um, as you know, it's quite affected our readiness. Um, you know, in some, like, I guess, different examples, like I know, for example, US ROK military exercises in 2020 had to be either scaled down or canceled because of this virus. Um, and I guess in terms of the U.S. Navy, I think, I believe it was the USS Theodore Roosevelt or one of those ships where um, just the proliferation of positive cases like forced it to dock and quarantine, you know, severely affecting like operational schedules and what have you. Um, but just broadly speaking, Mr. Donovan, um, how has the U.S. military, I guess, broadly adapted to COVID-19? Um, what are some of the, yeah, what are some of the challenges that you've seen as the U.S. military try to maintain that readiness? Um, and what are, yeah, what are some just broad lessons learned across that area? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. The, um, I think the Department of Defense got out in front of the COVID-19 threat pretty early. Um, I specifically remember uh, one Sunday afternoon, um, a little over a year ago, it was January 26th, when um, my Assistant Secretary of Defense for Health Affairs, Tom McCaffrey, called me up and said, hey, this, uh, you know, this virus that's uh, coming from China, um, you know, it seems to be a problem. Uh, I recommend we uh, get with the Secretary of Defense and, and start, um, you know, seeing what we're going to do about this to get out in front of it. So it was very, very early uh, in the process. So I talked with Secretary Esper. Um, he subsequently established uh, three priorities for the Department of Defense with, uh, with regard to COVID-19 response. The first is the health and safety of our people. Uh, the second is to maintain our national strategic capabilities. And then the third was to support the national COVID response uh, effort. And, uh, and we kept those through. Uh, the entire time that I was there, and um, even after Secretary Esper uh, left last November, we continued that on. Um, I think they're good priorities. I'm not sure what the current administration is is doing right now, but I suspect it's something similar uh, to that. So um, on January 30th, I issued the first force protection uh, uh, health protection guidance, if you will. Uh, we issued 15 subsequent um, health protection uh, guidance uh, memos, if you will, to the force and to the entire department through the years or uh, through the year following that. And uh, 
And I have to tell you, when, when the virus first emerged, there was not much known about it. You know, we knew it was a coronavirus and, you know, coronavirus is a large family of uh, viruses like the common cold to flus and that, that sort of thing. Um, but we really had no idea what the impact was going to be on readiness and, um, and you know, taking Secretary Esper's priorities, we had to ensure that we maintain the ability of the Department of Defense to do its missions, you know, which is, uh, you know, uh, deter and defend um, for the nation. And, um, you know, so there were some doubts at the beginning that we would be able to um, kind of operate through this uh, at full capacity. And let me give you an example, our recruiting and, uh, and a sessions training. Um, we actually shut it down for a couple of weeks, uh, starting, I think it was in later February until we established some protocols. And, um, you know, it, it has all the same things that the American public has had to deal with, you know, wearing masks, uh, maintaining social distancing, uh, disinfecting surfaces, all those sorts of things. But how do you do that when you're doing basic training where we used to people all being together in close proximity. Right. And uh, so, you know, the services very quickly developed uh, some um, protocols and procedures for doing that, uh, the scheduling and stuff. But, and it, it was along about March or April where um, the services started saying that uh, we're not have any impact on our recruiting or our sessions training. And uh, I had to tell you at first I was doubtful uh, when they said that, uh, but as we ended up the end of the fiscal year in September of last year, all the services met their recruiting and, and retention goals, uh, all of them. And, uh, and it was because they quickly adapted, took the guidance that, uh, that my office put out and, uh, adapted their procedures very quickly to do that. Um, part of the priorities, as I mentioned, uh, Secretary Zesper's second priority was, uh, to maintain our national strategic capability. So when you think of all our very critical strategic capabilities, such as our uh, nuclear enterprise mission uh, for bombers, for the ICBMs, for the uh, uh, submarine uh, launch uh, ballistic missile, that sort of thing. We, we have placed, and, and I'll give credit to the strategic command commander, uh, in place, very strict protocols uh, where we went through, and I don't think there was a single reported case of coronavirus in any of those areas by uh, mission crew members uh, up until the time I left, at least last month. Oh, wow. So they were very, very effective in, in making sure that we were maintaining those strategic capabilities. Hmm. Um, another area that I'll, uh, I'll mention is the critical role the National Guard played uh, in, uh, you know, at one point, I think we had upwards of 65,000 guardsmen uh, activated uh, to help in the states, uh, you know, not only with uh, medical personnel, uh, you know, at local hospitals and that sort of thing, but also in uh, setting up testing checkpoints and administering tests. And uh, I understand now they're, uh, you know, very involved in administering vaccinations uh, as well. Too. So I think um, when you take the uh, Department of Defense, who is used to operating uh, in unknown environments and uh, give them the challenge, uh, they're going to rise to the occasion. I think they, they uh, did very well. Now, 
uh, one of the things you asked about was the lessons learned. I think uh, there were some lessons learned um, uh, that sort of went along with how we found out how the virus uh, actually uh, impacted uh, various categories of people. Okay, so when when we had the problem with the Teddy Roosevelt that you talk about, the aircraft carrier that had an initial outbreak uh, of the virus, the vast majority of those people that were infected were asymptomatic. They were not uh, sick, uh, and even the ones who were sick were had very mild symptoms and that sort of thing. Uh, but we didn't understand the virus. So we sort of took the uh, very conservative route, if you will, of getting it into port and quarantine and, and all that sort of thing. Uh, the Navy since that time has come up with uh, some very, very effective protocols for isolating cases that may have occurred on a, on a ship and that sort of thing. And then, um, um, of course, with the availability of the vaccine now, uh, we've prioritized uh, using that same general strategic uh, framework, if you will, of, of uh, priorities that Secretary Esper had set over a year ago uh, mm -hmm. to now vaccinate. And I saw an article this morning that over, I think it's 643,000 service members have received at least their first vaccination now. So uh, I, I think, um, um, but the biggest probably lesson learned that I saw is uh, the driving the need for digital transformation and the ability to absorb, uh, manipulate, and gain insight from information. It really sort of showed up um, uh, during the COVID response. Um, you've probably heard about other things like joint all domain command and control and, and yeah. all the other uh, sort of sexier topics, but uh, I'll give you one vignette. Uh, it was very early when I was uh, in a meeting on COVID with Secretary Esper, and he asked, What's our, what's our bed capacity of our military medical treatment facilities? And I said, I don't have that number right offhand, sir, but I'll get back here quickly with that. And I assumed that I would be able to get that information quickly. Um, but it turns out that, you know, we had not digitally transformed that information and it took a lot longer than it should have for me to just answer the question of what's our, what's our military medical treatment facility, bed capacity, and staffing capacity, those sorts of things. So, you know, it ended up being a lot of hand jam telephone calls and, and trying to gather this information from 384 facilities in the Department of Defense, right. uh, where uh, that just showed me that, you know, there's no reason why this isn't online and immediately accessible and, and updated in near real time. Uh, and there are a lot of other uh, examples where uh, a digital transformation or digital modernization would have made a huge difference in the ability to process information and get key information to decision makers early. Gotcha. No, that, that makes sense. Wow, that's a oh, quite a huge sweeping uh, suite of lessons uh, the department learned there. But thanks for those insights, Mr. Donovan. Um, I guess moving on to the next question on COVID-19 and readiness. Uh, clearly, you know, we've been in this sort of quarantine lockdown mode for God knows how long. And uh, clearly, I think if there's one thing this pandemic has taught us, it's, I guess, about like, the, I guess the critical nature of bio or health security. Uh, but in your opinion, Mr. Donovan, do you think from an institutional perspective and a sort of 
decision-making process, um, how do you think COVID-19 will affect how we, I guess, perceive security? I guess beyond just the sort of traditional domains of, um, you know, like war fighting and whatnot, do you think that the pandemic has fundamentally reshaped uh, how we do view different security threats, how we respond to those threats accordingly? Uh, what, what's your take on that? I, I think from a from a national perspective, it, it certainly has. I mean, it's really the first um, global pandemic that we've had to deal with in over 100 years, right, since this mm -hmm. flu uh, back in the 19-teens. Um, but I can tell you, the Department of Defense has, has always had this on its radar. And um, we call it the C. Bernie, if you will, the chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear uh, um, counters, if you will. And how do we fight in, a, in an environment that may include chemical weapons or biological weapons and that sort of thing? So, um, you know, a lot of folks don't know this, but... Uh, after uh, after a couple of pandemics, the bird flu, and then you know the things coming out of Africa about 15 years ago, um, we actually stood up a, a biological research and manufacturing facility down in Florida, and um, and we've uh, done a lot of work on um, on sort of the preparatory actions for vaccine development and that sort of thing. And one of the reasons why we were able to develop a vaccine so very quickly, uh, you know, we're in, uh, in some cases it can take up to 10 years to get approval uh, to use a vaccine was in large part due to the investments that the Department of Defense had put into biological research, vaccine development, and even manufacturing facilities so that we weren't dependent on the commercial industry for vaccines if we needed to manufacture enough for our own uh, population. Um, so I think, uh, uh, you know, one of the things coming out of the pandemic, uh, which will be um, to um, keep the emphasis on this uh, issue for the 535 uh, members of the board of directors of the Department of Defense, which is Congress, right, <laughs> across the river, mm -hmm. and uh, to make sure that, um, that, you know, that sufficient funding is available to do this. Another uh, another interesting thing that we saw as it relates back to digital modernization was uh, the DOD operates the Joint Pathology Center, which keeps tissue samples um, from uh, all different kinds of diseases and, and wounds and that sort of thing. In fact, the Joint Pathology Center had tissue samples of the Spanish flu from victims of the Spanish flu in 1918. Now the Joint Pathology Center had all these in physical form. Their slides, you know, remember back in school when you did the microscope. Sixth grade bio class, yeah. And, yeah. You know, they, had, they had millions of these and uh, yet there's technology available today uh, where we can digitize all this information. And one of the things that came out of the first CARES Act and that I had put a big plug in with Congress was to uh, get us some seed money for the Joint Pathology Center so we can start digitizing all this information so that in the future, uh, when there's an unknown virus or, or some variant of a virus that comes up, we have immediate access to millions and millions of, of 
tissue samples and uh, samples of uh, virus and that sort of thing so that we can do some immediate you know, information technology-based processing, uh, you know, instead of doing it all by hand. So um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And we were able to get the CARES Act funding uh, mm. to do that. And uh, uh, these are very expensive machines as you can might imagine that right. <laughs> they slide in. And I mean, it's at the electron microscope uh, level of, of technology, but it's certainly worth the, the effort uh, and it's really very small amount of funding in, in the big scheme of things as well, too. So um, I think, um, you know, we, we saw the uh, really the crucial role of Northern Command um, as far as uh, supporting the national effort. That was uh, their primary focus throughout the pandemic still is. Is making sure that the Department of Defense uh, can bring the assets to bear um, you know, upon request of the civilian authorities. And, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is actually the ones in charge. Uh, and then FEMA under them, Federal Emergency Management Agency. Uh, but the Department of Defense has vast resources uh, that it can bring to bear. Um, and I talk about the National Guard, but, you know, several hundred thousand guardsmen uh, that uh, have both state and federal roles uh, that can be used. So I think we uh, sort of punctuated the importance of, of the National Guard and our reserves. Um, and, uh, and the last thing I'll say is, is the close cooperation and coordination that we had with the Department of Veterans Affairs was very useful. Uh, you know, the Veterans uh, Administration hospitals all across the countries have vast resources that they can bring mm -hmm. uh, to the effort as well, too. And I had a really, really close uh, relationship with the, both the uh, Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Robert Wilkie, and, and his deputy who was uh, performing the duties, Pam Powers. Um, and it didn't hurt that uh, Robert Wilkie had my job prior to becoming the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. So uh, he understood the, uh, the relationship as being important. And, uh, you know, we made some good inroads with that as well to uh, electronic healthcare records. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when a, a service member separates the service and then comes under the care of the uh, VA, um, you know, it would be really helpful if his medical record was just one medical record, right? Right. That's used by both Department of Defense and Department of Veterans Affairs. You know, I retired from active duty in 2008, mm -hmm. and I had to stand at a copy machine and, and make a copy of all my medical records so I could come bring it to the VA when I, after I retired. Mm -hmm. And, you know, after 30 years in the Air Force, uh, I had a pretty thick record, probably four inch thick medical record. Oh, wow. But we're at the point now where we're both using the same system, DOD and VA, we're starting to roll that out across the country now, where it's the same record. So that'll avoid folks like me standing at a copy machine, making copies of all my uh, all my medical records uh, to, to bring to the VA. But it's, it's things like that. And then you know, that digital uh, modernization, the ability to tell immediately what the capacity is in certain areas for hospital rooms and, and beds and ICUs and, and that sort of thing. Uh, so I think um, 
there are a lot of lessons learned. Uh, the Deputy Secretary uh, Dave Norquist at the time uh, had actually established a lessons learned task force for COVID-19, and that process is undergone. I uh, spent about two hours on an uh, interview with the uh, folks that were putting the lessons learned together, and they did that across the entire department. And uh, I assume that would probably be a, uh, a, a publicly available report at some point when that comes out. And if not, Congress will make it publicly available. So, <laughs> yep, for sure. So I, I think, um, you know, the the loss of life is terrible. Um, you know, um, uh, a lot of it was before we knew a lot about uh, how do we treat it, how do we test for it. Um, I think we uh, will probably come out of it stronger uh, than ever before and more prepared. Uh, for another pandemic, and we're already hearing the uh, reports of variants of this virus and, and that sort of thing, and how that might uh, impact the population as well, too. But I, I think, uh, unfortunately, is probably uh, uh, hit or stay, uh, at least the awareness of it. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and in the end, that's a, that's a good thing. Yeah. Mr. John, thanks for thanks so much for sharing those insights. Uh, I guess as the DOD's role in all of this, I completely did not know about. I guess what happened behind the scenes, but yeah, I guess that shed a huge light on, I guess what was going on uh, at the time. Uh, Mr. John, I guess one more question, uh, and this is sort of uh, I guess more topical, a uh, career related. But so many of the students in our program are interested in obviously national security policy making, you know, serving serving their country, um, and generally in that sort of sort of line of career, uh, what career advice in general would you have for our students uh, if they're interested in this line of work? Well, uh, you know, uh, a lot of it is uh, is being fortunate with good timing. Uh, you know, I was a professional staff member. I got to work for Senator John McCain on the SASP. And, um, you know, that was really, um, you know, I, I think a, a combination of fortune and circumstances. I knew someone that was on the committee and uh, they had just taken the Republican side had just taken back the majority. And, and I sent him a note saying, hey, do you have any openings? And he said, send a resume. And, uh, you know, in a very short period after I'm standing in John McCain's office being interviewed for the Senate Armed Services Committee, you know, I had to pinch myself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so... I think, uh, I guess the bottom line to that is, is if you don't ask, the answer is always no. <laughs> so true. if you're interested in this, uh, seek out the opportunities. You know, they're not, as good as you may think you are, uh, people aren't gonna come knocking on your door. You need to go knocking on doors and, and you know, express your experience, your desires and, and your interests and, uh, and make that known to folks. Um, and there's nothing, especially nowadays, that stops you from writing, you know, uh, writing and articulating uh, specific thoughts. I mean, there are so many different, you know, your, your podcast is one example, but there's so many different um, online publishing um, capabilities out there, uh, you know, they're, um, you know, War on the Rocks is one that comes to mind that a lot of folks follow and, and the various think tanks and that sort of thing is, uh, is right. And uh, get your opinions out there and then someone will probably notice and ask questions. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the last thing I would say is, is never lose your curiosity. 
you know, the, the you know, the, the human curiosity is what keeps us going and what makes us better all the time. You know, read everything, form your own opinions and express those opinions. So that, that would be my suggestion. No, those are all, those are all great. Those are all great tips, Mr. Donovan. And I hope our audience is listening and taking notes, but, um, yeah, definitely we'll carry that forward um, as we go into this field. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I have with me the Honorable Matthew P. Donovan, again, former Undersecretary of Defense for uh, Personnel and Readiness. Uh, Mr. Donovan, thanks again for being on our pod. Well, thank you, John, and, uh, and good luck to you and uh, all your audience out there. I appreciate the invitation. Yep. And you're listening to Georgetown Security Studies Review's Precision Guided Podcast, covering all things national security and foreign policy. Stay tuned, and we'll see you next time. Thanks.